Virginia's Commissioner of Health, Dr. Norman Oliver, says he plans to mandate a coronavirus vaccine when it's made available to the public. Currently, state law gives him the authority to require immediate immunization during a public health crisis, though people with a medical exemption can refuse. A bill being considered in the ongoing special session would allow those with a religious exemption to opt out. Dr. Oliver says he strongly opposes the bill. It's killing people now. We don't have a treatment for it. And if we develop a vaccine that can um, prevent it from spreading in the community, we will save hundreds and hundreds of lives. That bill still needs to clear a House committee before it could be voted on by the full chamber. Welcome, everyone. I'm Daniel Joseph, and you're on the Corner Fringe. And I thought we open up with a little clip like that one just to kind of get acclimated to the new environment we live in. I suspect we're going to be seeing a lot more of that rhetoric injected into the narrative where we see more talk of force vaccinations. Now, if you if you listen to the clip carefully at the front end, it talks about the immense power that the Virginia Commissioner of Health has where he can just literally snap his fingers in a moment and immediately mandate a vaccine or a vaccination for everyone, man, woman, child, uh, you know, throw out your constitutional rights. You don't have any. Your personal privacy rights to your own body. You don't have any. Uh, as parents, your parental rights completely gone. You don't have any say over whether or not your children get a vaccination. Uh, we live in some seriously scary times when you see this kind of activity. And as I mentioned before, this has the Antichrist written all over it. And I think uh, the more you watch what unfolds, the more you see what we have to talk about today, I think that will become clear. And so with that said, let's continue today. I really want to kind of just build upon what we talked about last week. Uh, we talked about the vaccination, how this could be uh, what I would say a potential candidate uh, for the mark of the beast. And... Um, we spent a little bit of time talking about that, bringing forth different points and evidences. Uh, but this week, uh, I want to broaden our horizons in regard to this topic, in regard to the mark of the beast as a whole. There are some things that I need to bring to the table that are instrumental, things that are fundamental uh, to this topic, things, as, as I mentioned last week, things that are going to remove the fear, the anxiety, the uncertainty that exists in this arena is, as people come to dip their toe in this pool uh, to talk about the mark of the beast, uh, there's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of confusion. And uh, God, God never intended that. Uh, and if there's anything that we needed to have clarity on, it is this topic. And so we're going to look at the mark of the beast and I'm going to tell you the things that we bring to the table today, they are fundamental and so critical for you to have. You won't be worried about the next latest fad, technological craze that comes out that people all of a sudden pinpoint, oh, that's the mark of the beast, whether it's a barcode or whether it's an RFID chip, whatever the case may be. They won't be running to say, oh, this, you know. This is the latest, this is definitely the back, this is the mark of the beast, no question about it. As though that element in and of itself is the mark of the beast. 
uh, we got to have some more depth to us. We got to be able to identify the mark of the beast through scriptural means. This is the basis of our wisdom. We need to draw from this well. It makes us wise. It makes us stable. It makes us spiritually competent. And so I'm very excited about today. Uh, for some of you that have struggled in this area, um, hoping to bring a lot of clarity to this uh, so that you don't have to worry about is this, the, is this the, the mark of the beast or not. And that includes even the vaccine. Even though I will say everything that this is looking to take on uh, is definitely got the Antichrist written all over it. But I'm not nervous about it. I'm not fearful because I know what matters. I know what matters when it comes to the mark of the beast, and that's what we need to dig into. And so with that said, let's break into this Revelation chapter 13, verse 15. We read this. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So here's the thing, and I, I kind of briefly talked about this last week. When it comes to the mark of the beast, it, the mark of the beast is not simply a mark for the sake of the mark. That's not what the devil, that's not his goal, that's not his agenda. His agenda is to be worshipped. It's what he wants. It's what he craves for. He wants to be the object of your affection. This is what he's seeking. He wants what only belongs to God. He wants what only God deserves. He wants our worship. He wants to be God. And so one of the primary fundamental principles that you have to understand is that it is going to ground you. It is about, I would agree with Dr. Halstead, that it is in fact about worship. I mean, we got to build our case upon that reality. Now, continuing on, verse 16, we read this. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's, there's a little bit of debate here as to, is this mark physical in nature, explicitly? Or is it spiritual in nature? Uh, because they're very different. And, you know, the side that falls on the physical will, will take you to the next verse, verse 17. I didn't put it up here. But basically it says that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark. And so the thought is, is well, clearly, Daniel, for it to be the mark of the business, it has to be visible. It has to be explicitly a physical mark of some kind on the hand or on the forehead. That's how we know that this is going to be the mark of the beast, where another side of the coin would argue, mm, wait a second, it doesn't have to be an actual or explicitly a physical mark, but rather the mark of the beast is inherently spiritual. Now, for those of you who fall into that camp, such as myself. It doesn't preclude a physical manifestation of some kind. 
But what it does is it puts all the emphasis and understanding and the reality of the mark of the beast where it belongs. And that is, this is inherently a spiritual concept. And this is so critical for us to understand. I'm going to prove that today. It's not simply a physical mark. And so everybody's emphasis is the RFID chip or the credit card with the chip in it or uh, the barcode or the tattoo or these are, these are the, th- this is the focus. We're way off. We're way off, you know, pun intended, the mark here. Because biblically, when we look at the mark of the beast from a biblical perspective, we're given a completely different picture. A much more profound picture, a much more grounded picture, one that has clarity rather than uncertainty. And so what I want to do is I want to begin by digging into this and drawing your attention to where the mark is placed. And this is where we'll begin to see that this truly is a spiritual mark. And you'll notice it says the right hand. It doesn't say the left hand. This is very specific. It specifically says the right hand. This is where the mark is going to be placed. And we have to ask the question, why? Why is the mark placed on the right hand? Why is the left hand not mentioned? And the answer to that is because the right hand actually indicates the object of your affection. The right hand indicates your decisions. It's your choices that you make. They're depicted metaphorically by the right hand. And now you might say, Daniel, that, that sounds great, but that sounds like a load of opinions. And I, I want to show you this is not my opinion. This is, this is, a, this is, a, this is bound in the scriptures, uh, this reality. And so I want to dig into, and I actually want to first take you to Jesus' teachings. Now, one thing that I love about his teachings, and you're going to see it right here. Jesus' teachings unlock prophetic mysteries in the book of Revelation. They really do. They do in general. And I would say his, his teachings unlock mysteries of the Torah, bringing this profound and deeply spiritual understanding to the law of God and to what God really wants from us. And nobody's going to debate this, at least if you're a believer in Jesus. He is the ultimate teacher. And when my master speaks, I hang on every word. It is so profound. It is so powerful. Where you're going to see the benefits of having such uh, informed, well-informed rabbi, such as Yeshua Jesus is. Check this out, Matthew chapter 5, verse 30. And if your right hand, now Jesus doesn't say your left hand. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in to hell. And so here you have your your right hand is being expressed just as the mark of the beast. It's in a negative context. This is a negative context. But notice... What does it symbolize in this passage? Jesus is using the right hand to symbolize something. It is your choice to sin. It's your decision. You've made a decision to sin. And when that happens, now obviously the the moral of the story is if you got sin in your life, 
cut it off. And that's why I always use the term, if you're struggling in sin or whatever, I say cut it off. Cut it. Cut ties. It, that concept's taken from right here. Because Jesus is telling you, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust at all cost. doesn't matter if you have to go into the kingdom of heaven dismembered. This is how important it is that you make it. Whatever's, whatever struggles you have, you got to cut it. But notice, there's another aspect, there's another teaching here to extract that helps us with the prophetic mystery of the mark of the beast. He explicitly says the right hand. And it's not a coincidence. This is not an accident. It's very intentional. And I'm going to tell you, this is consistent with Jewish thought prior to Jesus' coming. They understood this concept existed. For example, in Psalm 144, verse 11, Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose what? Left hand? No. Whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Again, we have the right hand, this, this choosing the right hand to be symbolic of what? Of men, women, actively engaging in sin, choosing to sin. This is their character. This, it's being revealed through this symbol of the right hand. They are, here it's the right hand of falsehood. They're agreeing to lie and they're okay with it. So they possess this right hand of falsehood. And again, I, I tell you to a Messianic Jew, to a Messianic Jewish believer in Jesus in the first century, when they heard or read the words of John and his apocalypse in the book of Revelation about the mark of the beast being put upon their right hand or on their forehead, understand something clearly. They were not mystified. They were not in awe. They were not, well, what is the mark of the beast going to be? They were not bewildered. See, because this is something that they understood very well. They were educated on this. They knew what the right hand meant. And that's why it's so important to be biblically grounded on this topic. Now, let me jump the fence for a second. Because we find biblically that this concept of the right hand and actually performing evil is, is not just used uh, of evil. In other words, the right hand can symbolize the doing of good. And this gets even more interesting. Look at this in Psalm 16, uh, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is where? He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And so here you have, this is King David. And King David is clearly revealing that he is in this intimate relationship with God. He has an authentic relationship with him. He follows him. He obeys him. He thus has put him at his right hand. Because he's chosen him. And therefore, he's at his right. Now that's interesting because you think of the father and his choices. Where does the Messiah Jesus sit? Interesting. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And we know this. It's, it's Old Testament, New Testament. This isn't debatable. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Why? 
because God chose him. He is his only begotten son. God chose him to create everything that was made, was made through the son. God chose him to redeem the world through his sacrifice. God chose him to judge all mankind. He is his choice. Therefore, Yeshua sits at his right hand, a, a place of honor, a place of decision. Let me take you to Yeshua and show you who he's chosen. And he will set, meaning the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Isn't that fascinating? Why are the sheep on his right hand? Because he's chosen them. He had, this is his decision. Therefore, it is symbolized by the right hand. Again, Matthew 6, verse 3. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, do you honestly believe that what Jesus is saying, hey, when you go, you know, put your tithe in the money box or you go to support the poor, you give something to the poor, make sure physically your left hand goes behind your back. And then you can go ahead and do this. I mean, obviously, he doesn't mean this hyper-literally. It's figurative. But notice, Jesus attributes the act of doing this good, it symbolized the right hand, by the right hand. And so we can see throughout Scripture that both in the positive context and the negative context, the right hand is utilized, it is meaningful, and at the end of the day, all it is referring to is your choice, whether good or evil, will be depicted by the right hand. And I'm going to tell you something right now. That is the spot that the devil is vying for in your life. He wants to be at your right hand. He wants to be your decision because he wants to be your God. This is what he's looking to do. This is something that we need to understand as we read about this mark of the beast that's given on the right hand or on the forehead. I want to take this a step further. I want to take you back to the very beginning. And when I mean that, I mean that pretty much literally. I want to go back to the Garden of Eden. And I want to take you back to the Garden because the Garden of Eden actually talks about the mark of the beast. And most people are not familiar with this reality. But it's all built upon the following precedent. And this is Isaiah 46, verse 10. This is Megid Merishit Acharit, which is to say, declaring the end from the beginning, or quite literally in the Hebrew, declaring from the beginning the end, the Acharit, or what uh, the Jews call the Acharit Hayamin, the end of days. It's the last days. In other words, what the Lord tells us is that, listen, I am foretelling, I am giving you the prophetic mysteries. They are embedded at the very beginning, in the garden. There will be prophetic mysteries hidden of the last days of what's going to go down. And I'm going to show you the reality of this. You are going to see this today. And you're going to see how powerful this story really is. It unfolds so much. Uh, to us as believers in Jesus. We need this. And again, and I, I quote this often, but the Jews have a saying. It's, it's a Jewish proverb, if you will. The ma'aseh avot siman lebanim. 
In other words, the deeds of the fathers are a sign for the children. In other words, what we read about in the Old Testament, these stories, they're not just history. They're prophetic insights into what the Lord's going to do in the future. In other words, they're decoder rings. They give us, give us secrets. They give us insight into what's coming. It gives us insight into understanding Bible prophecy. And so with that said, let's go back to the garden. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now there is a plethora of things just embedded within this very small statement. There's a lot of things that need to be dug out here. Number one is this statement, the serpent. This is the law of first mention. This merits special attention. This is the first time the devil is introduced in the Bible. It's the first display we have of him. And notice the title that is used of him. The title is very important. It, it isn't in, in the Hebrew Hasatan or what we would say adversary or Satan in the English or devil. None of those titles are used here. No, no, no. The title that is used here in the Hebrew is Nahash. It mean, and it, it simply means serpent. But here's the thing about this. It doesn't just mean serpent. It actually is a reference to witchcraft, to casting a spell, to, to one who divines or enchants. I mean, this is significant that it was specifically this title. And this word in the Hebrew doesn't just mean a serpent. It also means a witch or a witchcraft. Uh, and in considering the context, I think it's uh, pretty important because the context of what is the devil going to do? The context of the story is he's going out to, I say this tongue in cheek, but he's going out to enchant. He's going out to deceive, to allure through deception, Eve, in a sense, casting a spell, getting her to believe in a lie. Absolutely demonic. Now, the other thing I want to extract here, and this is going back to what I just said, God declares the end from the beginning. This title is found again in the book of Revelation. And I just want to take you there for a moment. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Now, the first thing I would say, you know, there has been a debate. Is the serpent in the garden really the devil? Well, John takes care of that. There's really nothing to debate about. We don't want to spend any time on it. Because John makes it clear the serpent of old is the devil. Now, the fact that he specifies the serpent, he doesn't just say the serpent. He says the serpent of old. He is taking you back to Genesis. He's taking you back to the Garden of Eden. And by doing so, he's showing you, okay, the one that's in question here, this he's also called the dragon. He's called the devil. He's, he's called Satan. He's called the serpent of old dealing with this antichrist the spirit of antichrist dealing with the beast there is a connection here this is the very one that was in the garden in a way john's alluding to the fact the serpent vote go you have to go back to the garden to know what john's talking about and i i think that's interesting because the story holds prophetic significance 
to what John is talking about. And this is why John is thinking about the serpent of old, because as he's thinking about the Antichrist and the beast, this is what comes to his mind. Very important to note. Now, there's more. The one who deceives the whole world. Now, I, I highlighted this because I want you to, the one description he gives of the devil in this context, he could have said, hey, you're a murderer. Hey, you're a thief. We know he's all of these things. That's not what he says here. He specifically says the one who deceives the whole world, because as you go back to the garden, what did the devil do to mankind? He deceived Eve. That was the whole basis of it. And this is at the heart, the heartbeat of the Antichrist. The heartbeat of the Antichrist is this fact, the deception. And that's why Jesus spends so much time warning us about deception, about false prophets, about wolves in sheep's clothing. This is why the apostles couldn't stop talking about it. Our New Testament is filled with the warnings. They're all over the place, right? All right, with that said, let's go back because there's a lot more to unfold here. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, this for me, and I just say personally, this is where it gets mind-blowing. Because you'll notice, isn't this interesting? The serpent is likened to a beast. It's associated uh, to a beast. Isn't that interesting? Because when I think about the devil in the book of Revelation, what do we read a lot about? The mark of the beast. I mean, you look at this, honestly, if you were just not to have Revelation or any of the New Testament at all, this could appear to be not really valuable information. The fact that these words were said, you could just have easily said, now the serpent was cunning, which the Lord had made. Why not say that? Why does it have to say, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast? And the reason is, is because this serpent is being associated to the beast. And not just that, but notice, there's a direct type of association. There's a, there's a kind of relationship being discussed here. He is more cunning. In other words, he is more elevated than this beast. He's likened to this beast. He's associated to this beast, but he's higher. Well, that fascinates me as we go to Revelation 13, verse 4. So they worshipped the dragon, dracon in Greek, who gave authority to what? The beast. Fascinating, isn't it? How the dragon, Satan, the devil, the serpent of old, is affiliated with the beast. There is a relationship, yet he is exalted over the beast. Exactly what we were told in Genesis 3.1 absolutely mind-blowing now going back to that passage because there is more to cover here now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the lord god had made then it goes on and says this and he said to the woman has god indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden you know one of the most important things you're ever going to learn in regard to the mark of the beast is right here Specifically, this statement, has God indeed said? Again, going back to this law first mentioned, this is the first time 
that the devil interacts with mankind, at least recorded. The first time his interaction with mankind being recorded, and what does the devil do? And so this is so critical. He comes and calls into question the commandment of God. This is what he does. He comes to cast doubt on the word. It can't be trusted. Why do you trust in it? Why do you trust in God's commandments? Why do you believe God? Has God really said? And so this is, this is frightening to see him work in this fashion to come this way. Because one thing I can tell you, just in this generation, I have seen such deception come over many believers. The devil is the master of disguise. He is the master of deception. And the way he uses his tongue is, it is like a serpent. It is so vile. Very, very frightening. Continuing. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Oh, lest you die. Now, you can't make this stuff up. And the reason I say this, isn't this interesting? Satan's coming to call into question the commandment of God, coming to cast doubt on it. And what does this command have to do with? Food. Now, this is, this is why I'm saying you can't make this stuff up. It has to deal with food, actual food that would come into Adam and Eve's temple, the residing place of the Holy Spirit. There were set, I don't want to get into the details, but Jewish tradition holds the fact that there was a light that shone. They, they had special garments of light. They had the glory of God upon them, the presence of the living of God upon them. And so very much so, this concept that we have today of knowing the Holy Spirit wants to dwell within us. That was a concept that they had in the garden, that they were the temples. The glory of God was upon them. And isn't it interesting? The devil came to them and said, it's okay. Nothing will happen if you eat from that which is forbidden. And the reason I say you can't make that stuff up because this is exactly the narrative that is happening today. It doesn't matter what you put into your body. It doesn't matter if these vaccines have pig blood or whatever other blood or whatever mouse brains and monkey kidneys, whatever these, these things are being developed in these vaccines, are, it, it doesn't matter because you know what? You're going to live. That same lie that Satan told Eve, you will surely not die. You're going to live. But then Eve comes back. And what does Eve say? Eve comes back and says, no, this is what God said. So at this point in the narrative of the story, Eve's done well. Because he, he calls into question the commandment of God. But Eve bounces right back and says, whoa, no, God said this. 
This is a commandment of God. I'm not supposed to eat of that which is forbidden. And what God told me is I will die. Now you have one or two choices. You can either believe that or not. You can either believe in the word of God or you can believe in the word of the devil. Again, I'm telling you, the devil is vying for that right hand. He's vying to be at your right hand. He is vying to be your counselor, to be your God. Well, how does the serpent respond to this? Moving on to verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. It's going to be okay. The enemy comes. He removes all fear of disobedience from the equation. No, no, you're not going to die. Oh, no, no. It's okay. You're going to live. It's going to be fine. In fact, it's not up here, but he goes to sweeten the pot a little bit. And actually, oh, God knows in the day that you eat of it, oh, your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be blessed. So if you do this, if you take of what is forbidden, think of the blessing. Don't worry about what God said in regard to the consequences of dying and None of that's going to happen. I'm here to tell you everything Scripture says, that when it says don't eat it, when it says don't touch it, don't corrupt your temple, don't eat food offered to idols, when it says that, God means it. Don't do it. Don't trust in the tongue of a serpent. He's not going to save you. This is what, is this not what faith is all about? trusting in the word of the Lord, trusting in the Lord with your whole heart, not leaning on your own understanding. No, you got to move your own understanding out of the way so that you can trust him and trust his word because he is true. His word is true. Amen. Now, you look at this story and what is transpiring in the Garden of Eden and what do you realize here? What, what are we seeing this is, this is something that I think is pivotal to point out. This whole episode is all over what? It's all about the commandments of God. It's all about your faith in God, to trust in his commandments. That's what this is about. Now, having said that, I want to build on this, and I want to take you to the book of Deuteronomy. Because what we discover as you come to Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have what is known as the Aseret HaDevarim. We have the Ten Commandments, which Christianity today, uh, typically, at least for the most part, there are certainly some pastors that come out telling us to unhitch from the Ten Commandments. But for the most part, they realize, hey, the Ten Commandments, we, we need to do these things. And if you read Matthew 19, where the young rich ruler comes and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? His response is, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? Then Jesus starts rattling off the Ten Commandments. You want to enter into eternal life? You want to see the kingdom of God? You need to keep these. And so the Ten Commandments are special. Everyone on Mount Sinai literally heard the voice of God speak these commandments. It's the heartbeat of what they call the Torah. It's the heartbeat of the law. And so these commandments are listed in Deuteronomy 5. Immediately after preceding the, uh, the listing of these commandments, the reiteration, they were originally listed in Exodus 20, but they're reiterated in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But following the listing of these commandments, 
we are confronted with the most venerated, most revered prayer in all of Judaism, what is known as the Shema. A prayer, a passage of scripture that Jesus quotes multiple times and that he put on the highest pedestal possible. And so with that introduction, let's go to Deuteronomy 6.4. We read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today, these words which I command you today, shall be in your heart. And so he's talking about the commandments of God. The commandments of God are to be in our heart, and, and, and love is tied to obedience to the commandments. And all you need to do is go to John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In fact, that very statement is embedded within the Ten Commandments itself. It's embedded right within. And so love is intimately woven. In fact, Paul says, all the law meaning all the Torah is fulfilled in one word, you shall love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know that the first great commandment, love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, your neighbor as yourself. So it all has to do, love has to do with obedience. Love is the very, or obedience is the sign that you love. All right? When you think about First uh, John 2, 3. Think about that, that passage and, and verse 4. First John 2, 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him. In other words, how do I know I'm in relationship with God? If we keep his commandments. That's how you know. If you're keeping his commandments, I know I'm in relationship. I know I love him. But then it goes on and says, He who says he knows me and doesn't keep my commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And then I love what it goes on. It says, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God has been perfected in him. Whoever keeps his word, whoever keeps his commandment, that's the one where love is perfected because you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Now, continuing on, verse 7, we read, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Isn't this interesting? The commandments of God are to be, your mouth is to be filled with them. You're to talk of them all day long. We're to be teaching them to our children. Well, if we're supposed to have all these words flowing out of our mouth like living water, where would that come from? Does it just simply come from our mouth? No, it has to come from our heart because Jesus teaches that the things that proceed from the mouth, oh, they come from the heart. And so those things need to be embedded. We need to cherish them. In other words, if they're going to be in our heart, we're going to treasure them. And that which you treasure, that which is meaningful, is that which you talk about. The things that proceed from the mouth, they come from the heart. They're coming from what your value is. Your value system comes forth. In this, And so this is really powerful, and I, and I can't help but think about Psalm 19.9. The psalmist tells us, how can a young man cleanse his way? And the answer is, by taking heed according to your word with my whole heart. I have sought you. 
Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So it's the epitome of love is to cherish his word, is to cherish his commandments and never to compromise that. Well, now we get to our point. In verse 8, And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Oh, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Unreal. The commandments of God are being depicted to be placed upon your hand and upon your forehead. And where have we heard that before? Obviously, in the book of Revelation, we've heard this in regard. This is the very place that the mark of the beast gets placed. How can that be? How can the mark of the beast go on the right hand and, and or on the forehead, and yet the mark of the living God be placed in the same place? Well, we already covered that. Because the right hand and also the forehead are representative of your choices. The choices that you make, whether good or evil, that's what it represents. You know, and the hand is representative of the act of doing. You know, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, Ecclesiastes 9. And so it's, it's metaphorical of actually doing what you're choosing to do. And the mind is the willingness to do it. It's the heart behind it. Powerful. One other thing worth mentioning in regard to this passage do you understand that there are only really two contexts in which this idea of having a sign on your hand and on your forehead in regard to the commandments of God, there's only two contexts that this, this, this is used in the Old Testament. One is right here of the commandments. The other is in regard to the Passover. The observance of this festival of Passover, the passion of Christ, as some would call it, the crucifixion. But here's the thing with this. The star of the show of Passover is the lamb, the Pesach lamb. That lamb that shed its blood and its blood was applied to the door. And Israel was protected from the wrath of God. Israel was not just protected from the wrath of God, but because that blood was shed, they were delivered from their enemies and taken out of Egypt. Despite all those other uh, plagues falling down on people, one plague after another, I mean, this was the hand of the Lord, children of Israel were not delivered. Now you think about that. It was only through the blood of the Lamb, which was all prophetic, of Jesus and his power. Nothing else had the ability to deliver us from the Egypt of the world, from the grip of Satan. Nothing. Only Jesus's blood. Only his sacrifice. Otherwise, the Father would have given it. Otherwise, he would have done it. He would have just started wreaking havoc on the world with all his power. Nothing could do it except the Son. Nothing could do it except the blood of the lamb. Now look at this. This is in regard to the Passover lamb. And it shall be the observance of Passover. It shall be what? A sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. And so there are only two things that are utilized in the context of the hand and the forehead in the Old Testament. All the way through, there's only two things mentioned. 
One has to do with the observance of Passover, the other with the commandments of God. Now that is significant because as, in, as we go to Revelation, look at what it says, Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon, the devil, was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. The dragon is hating the woman and her offspring, which is to say the elect of God. This is the reference to the chosen ones, or what, what many Christians would say, Christians. Christians today, Messianic Jews, Messianic believers, Christians that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But here's what's interesting. The ones that the devil hates were given very specific criteria to who fits the bill as to who his enemy is. And what does it go on to say? It says, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isn't that fascinating? The one, the ones who are the adversaries to the devil are the ones who cling to the commandments and have faith in Jesus. Now we're told from scripture that all things are established on the testimony of two. That includes the faith. Faith is established on the testimony too. You can't just have a conceptual faith, but not yield to the instructions of the Lord. The flip side is I can't say I yield to the instructions of the Lord and say, oh, but I'm not going to accept Jesus as the Messiah. You can't have one without the other. You will die. You will die. You may profess Jesus as your Lord, but you don't follow him. You're going to die in your sin because you've rejected his instructions. You are not his disciple. You may observe the commandments of God, but reject him as the Messiah. You will die in your sins. There will be no hope for you. And so we are seeing right here the mark of the living God, a concept that is all over the Bible. And this is important. You want to understand the mark of the beast? Understand what the mark of God is. Understanding the mark of God will help you understand the mark of the beast. Let me take you to Revelation 14, 11, show you just how prominent it is just in this book alone. We could go other places, but... And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who, oh, sorry, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Then it goes on to say this. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those, oh, who keep the commandments of God and have faith of Jesus. Here again, we're confronted with this. And notice how these are contrasted. Back in verse 11, it was talking about those who worship the image of the beast, but then immediately it shows those who worship God. Verse 11, it's about the mark of the beast. Verse 12 is about the mark, or verse, uh, verse 12 is about the mark of God. Moving on to Revelation 20. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Why were they beheaded? They were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And then what does it say next? Who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Isn't that amazing? The people who cling to the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus, these are the ones that do not receive the mark of the beast. 
take one of those elements away and i'm telling you right now that group is now worshiping the beast take obedience to his commandments out of the equation they're going to worship the beast take faith in jesus out of the equation you don't have a choice you're going to accept you're going to get the mark of the beast and so as far as i'm concerned this opens up a whole new world of understanding in regard to what the mark of the beast really is uh, rather than looking for that latest technological fad coming out whether it's a tattoo or a mark all the various theories that are out there uh, you don't have to be swayed to and fro by every wind of doctrine when you have a firm understanding of what the right hand is representative on a biblical basis what the forehead represents on a biblical basis what the mark of God is you put all of that the mark of the beast is easy it's simply what the serpent of old did to Eve got her to compromise her allegiance to God her allegiance to the commandments of God and she trusted in a lie now you think about what Paul talks about he talks about in Revelation chapter Romans chapter 1 he talks about in 2nd Thessalonians how the people are trusting in a lie and therefore the Lord gives them over to their own demise they're trusting on they didn't believe the love of the truth we cannot compromise truth you know love does not rejoice in iniquity first uh, Corinthians 13 and so these are concepts that we got to have some clarity on if we have clarity on these concepts we're gonna have complete clarity on the mark of the beast let me say this I want you to think about this I'm gonna make a statement and you got to think it through after going through everything we've looked at here I, I can tell you emphatically this every generation that has ever existed has had a mark of the beast moment and we don't typically as believers think of it in that realm but it is true every generation has had to choose between life and death good and evil blessing and cursing we've had to make those choices and so every generation has had a mark of the beast moment uh, ponder this the mark of the beast that is spoken in the book of Revelation yes it is very specific I think we can all agree with that uh, the Revelation is about the finality of things no question about it we're the Antichrist now we know there are many many Antichrists John makes this clear but the final Antichrist this what you would call the prophet of the devil there is one that's gonna come in in finality but everything that John talks about was in a very real way experienced in all these different generations throughout time you know the those who are not Jesus's those who haven't confessed him in times past every generation okay take all the sinners since the beginning of time beginning with Cain who killed his brother Abel and there's nothing recorded about any repentance actually the opposite so uh and and we'll we'll know at the end for sure but everything it uh, as it looks is Cain's not getting into the kingdom of heaven Esau is not getting into the kingdom of heaven we see all these villains uh throughout the Bible all of them died in their generations now let me ask you do, do they go to a different place than the people 
that accept the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation? Did they go do, to a different place other than the lake of fire? What is my point? <laughs> my, my, my point is this, simply. The people being defined in Revelation who receive the mark of the beast, they're all going to the same place that every sinner in every generation are going. And thus, every one of these sinners had a mark of the beast moment. And unfortunately, they did not hold. They did not hold the line. And they compromised. Or some of them just outright rebelled. And in their hearts hated God. In their hearts denounced the truth of who Jesus is. His, his glory, his beauty, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his holiness. They denounced that. They didn't believe it. They're all going to the same place. So it is an accurate statement to say every generation, in a sense, has had a Mark of the Beast moment. And this is where I want to I take you back in history and, and show you, just give you a glimpse at different parts of history where this literally happened, where they're up against an Antichrist situation, a Mark of the Beast moment. And I actually want to begin by introducing you to Caligula, bad character in his days was absolutely seen as an antichrist now the emperor during jesus's day was what was it tiberius caligula followed him so this is during the apostles time okay this is caligula came to power actually shortly after uh, jesus's death and this was one bad character um I want to read to you a little bit from Josephus, first century Jewish historian. He records what Caligula tried to do. This is unbelievable. Look at this. Now Caius Caesar, and this is a reference to Caligula, did so grossly abuse the fortune he had arrived at. In other words, Josephus is saying uh, he did not wear the crown well of becoming emperor. And then he goes on, as to take himself to be a god, and to desire to be so called also, and to cut off those of the greatest nobility out of his country. He also extended his impiety as far as the Jews. Now, the first thing I want to mention here is, you know, I mean, this is the very definition of Antichrist. If you were living in the days such as Josephus were, and you have an emperor of Rome coming out and saying, I'm God, okay, I'm God, I should be worshipped. You should call me God. Uh, how else do you define the Antichrist? Because this is exactly how Paul describes the nature, the character, the persona of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians, right? He exalts himself above all that is called God. He says this in chapter 2. Exactly what we're seeing with Caligula. Well, on top of that, he's no friend of the Jews. Look at what he continues to do or what he attempts to do. Accordingly, he sent Petronius with an army to Jerusalem, oh, to place statues, his statues, in the temple, and commanded him that in case the Jews uh, would not admit of them, he should slay those that opposed it and carry all the rest of the nation into captivity. Man, you want to talk about an antichrist moment a mark of the beast moment in the sense of he wants to set up his statues of which he thinks he's god he wants to bring his statues his images into the temple for what purpose he wants to be worshiped this is why he wanted to do it man you want to you want to start a war with the jews this is the way to do it 
Now, fortunately, this never came to pass because you know what he did? He told the Senate he wants to go to Alexandria so that he could be worshipped as a god. Well, they had some common sense. They took him out. He was assassinated. So this little diabolical plan uh, ceased to exist. However, I'm going to tell you this. The spirit of Antichrist didn't leave because after him rose a man by the name of Nero. And make no mistake, historically, you can even see the generations after him. He was identified as the Antichrist. So much so that even after his death, people were talking about in regard to fulfilling the prophecies in the book of Revelation that Nero would be resurrected. He was so seen as the Antichrist. In fact, his name equals 666. And there's all sorts of other things we could talk about in regard to Nero. That he was the epitome of Antichrist. Well, we have a little recordation by Tacitus, a Roman historian. And you want to talk about a Mark of the Beast moment. Look at this. And Another thing worth mentioning, a little backdrop here. It was under Nero's reign that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were killed. Peter, right in Rome, crucified, as we're told, upside down. Paul was beheaded. I mean, this stuff is significant. I mean, how else do you define the spirit that goes after the apostles of Jesus? It's the spirit of Antichrist, right? Well, this is what Tacitus records. But all human efforts, all lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiation of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. In other words, there's a backdrop here. In AD 64, most of Rome burned to the ground. The problem is the talk on the street is it happened because crazy Nero who clearly is psychotic in his behavior, gave the order to burn it down. Okay? And so the whispers are going around in 64 AD about this, that Nero gave the order. Then we continue. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero can't have uh, the citizens of Rome thinking he burnt down Rome. So Nero, fa Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on oh look at this a class hated for their abominations called christians by the populace isn't that antichrist like and so to cover to take what his ill doings were to take the heat off himself just point the fingers, just like what Hitler did with the Jews. They're the problem for our financial problems. They're because any of our health problems that exist, it's the Jews. The Jews, we have a scapegoat. Nero's scapegoat was the Christians, in which many, most of them at this time, during Nero's day, were still Messianic Jews. Now the gospel was going out, and Gentiles were being grafted in all over the place. But it was heavily Messianic Jews. And so, yet once again, Nero's coming in here and placing the blame on them. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Now, get this. So, they're gathering Christians. There's a big uproar, and they start convicting them. But it says, Tacitus says, now keep in mind, he's a Roman historian. He's secular. This is not a you know, a biased take on this. He says, not so much of the crime of firing the city 
as of hatred against mankind. In other words, Rome was painting Christians, these psychotic, superstitious freaks, as their problems. They are the problem with Rome. They're hated in society. And so we're angry. Let's kill some Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Yeah, you want to talk about a mark of the beast moment? A do this or else situation? If you're a Christian under Nero's reign, you were being used as human torches to light the night. However, if you abandon your Christianity in following Christ and confessing Jesus as Lord, well, then you could go on living as a Roman citizen. Man, if, if this isn't a mark of the beast moment, I don't know what is. Because it's a do this or die situation. It's, it's, it's a real move of the Antichrist. And so you can see this in times past. This has existed. Let me fast forward to the early 2nd century. And what I want to show you is Pliny the Younger, his letter to Emperor Trajan. Who again, Trajan... Uh, no friend of Christianity, no friend of the Lord Yeshua, Jesus, on any level, Trajan also would be seen as an Antichrist. And uh, you're going to understand why. And Pliny uh, he would have been the prophet, if you will, of the Antichrist. Check this out. This is what he said. So Pliny's writing to Trajan. He's looking for him some some guidance, some instruction. He's got some Christians he's got to deal with, and he just wants further instructions on how to deal with them. So having never been present at any, uh, at any trials of the Christians, I am unacquainted with the method and the limits to be observed, either in examining or punishing them. Whether any difference is to be made on account of age, or no distinction allowed between the youngest and the adult, whether a repentance admits to a pardon, or if a man has been once a Christian, it avails him nothing to recant. Whether the mere profession of Christianity, albeit without crimes, or with the crimes associated therewith, are punishable. In all these points, I am greatly Doubtful. In other words, Trajan, I need some guidance on this. What do you want me to do in regard to the Christians? If we have Christians that are Christians, but yet they're going to denounce their faith, do they get to live? I mean, this is what he's coming. If we have Christians, what do we do with them? And so he, he goes on. In the meanwhile, the method I have observed towards those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them, whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. For whatever the nature of their creed might be, I could at least feel no doubt that contumacy and inflexible obstinacy deserved chastisement. There were others also 
possessed with the same infatuation, but being citizens of Rome, I directed them to be carried thither. In other words, what, what he's recognizing, and this is powerful, Tacitus is recognizing that there were Christians that were adamant. They were resolved in their faith, and they would not let go of the testimony of Jesus. They would not denounce his name. And he, he was irritated by this, by this, uh, this addiction, this steadfastness to this one known as Jesus, or as they called the Christ. Continuing, those who denied they were, in other words, Christians, or had ever been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense to your image. And so again, you know, the Caesar thing, there was a God complex with these emperors of Rome. And their images, they would make images and they were to be paid homage to. As you can see here, not just paid homage to, Trajan's uh, image was to be sacrificed to as a God. And so this is, this is the whole God thing. I mean, this is a mark of the beast moment. These guys, these Christians are being put in the mark. Either worship the beast and his image or else. I mean, again, I, I can honestly say if, 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 there's no better way to define the mark of the beast than what we are seeing here early in the second century. Now, continuing, which I had ordered to be brought for that purpose, together with those of the gods, and the other gods of Rome were also worshipped, who finally cursed Christ, none of which acts is said, those who are really Christians can be forced into performing. These I thought proper to discharge. In other words, oh, isn't this interesting? If you come and sacrifice to the Roman gods, to the image of Trajan, and pay homage to the emperor as a god, you're going to be let go. No harm will come upon you. You'll be allowed to continue on living in society. Mark of the beast moment. That's what this is. Continuing, others who were named by that informer at first confessed themselves to be Christians and then denied it. True, they had been of that persuasion, but they had quitted it. Some three years, others many years, and a few as much as 25 years ago. They all worshipped your statue and the images of the gods and cursed Christ absolutely gut-wrenching it makes you want to vomit to see these people gave in and truly those words of the apostle paul were true that many would fall away from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons they would fall away from the faith we actually have secular accounts of this happening right here in pliny's letter to trajan i mean this makes you sick they gave in they were not steadfast they didn't hold the line Ah, but they rewarded. They were rewarded by the world. Isn't that nice? It won't be on the day of judgment. Let me fast forward even further and introduce you to Decius. Uh, this is where we get into the mid-third century. And the interesting thing about Decius is that he had passed an edict ordering everyone to do as Trajan did. 
uh, you need to sacrifice to the Roman gods, okay? And of course, pay homage to him. And here's what's interesting. If you did it, certificates were given. I mean, you were actually given by the Roman magistrate, you were given a certificate saying, hey, I have fulfilled my duty in worshiping the gods of Rome. I have made sacrifice. And therefore, this certificate was proof of the homage you have paid. Absolutely amazing. I'm going to tell you this. Decius, yeah, he was seen as an antichrist because it was a mark of the beast moment for this generation. And, you know, I, I think of this and I think of what happened in his days. And I fast forward today. What are we talking about today? We're talking about digital certificates for this vaccination. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Let me share with you a recent headline. This comes from CNET. Headline reads, COVID-19 immunity certificates. Everything to know about this controversial solution. Um, immunity certificates, sometimes referred to as immunity passports or immunity cards, are a form of identification. You cannot make this up. To what? To help mark people. Cannot make this stuff up. Who have been infected with COVID-19, recovered and developed antibodies to the disease. Unreal, right? And so as, you, as, as we read about in history, this Decian, this Emperor Decian, who was seen as an antichrist, actually forcing people, passing edicts, you need to worship the beast, you need to worship his image. And if you don't, you're going to die. But if you do, guess what you get? You get a nice little certificate that allows you to function in society. I mean, you can't make this up because this is what we're up against here with these digital certificates that they're talking about with the vaccine. You take the vaccine, oh, you can live life at least as much as normally as possible. There is really no normal anymore. But you can reintegrate into society and you can go about your business. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, it's not okay if you take the vaccine. If in fact there's pig blood and cow blood and if it's uh, created uh, in the cell lines of aborted fetal tissue, no. That, that there's nothing okay about that at all. Let's fast forward from Decian. Not long after him rose uh, Diocletian. In I mean, basically, you're looking at late third century, about 284 to 305. Uh, Diocletian, absolutely, and scholars still talking about him today, was viewed as an antichrist. I mean. If you were living in his days, the words that uh, John wrote in Revelation came to life in a very real manner. He did the exact same thing that Decius did. He passed edicts forcing people to sacrifice to the gods. Now, let me read to you some commentary from Eusebius in his Historia Ecclesiastica. He comments on Diocletian. Check this out. It was in the 19th year of the reign of Diocletian in the month of distress called March by the Romans when the feast of the Savior's Passion was near at hand that royal edicts were published everywhere. Again, I say, you can't make this stuff up. In other words, the Lord's... 
we're coming up at the time of Passover, and what happens at the time of Passover? They start passing out edicts. Let me, let's do a little exercise. What happened last year during Passover? Insane edicts and mandates were being passed out all over the world in regard to the COVID-19 pandemic. This is where the lockdowns happen. Absolute, the world flipped upside down, total insanity coming out was happened during the Passover. That's unbelievable. First time synagogues were empty in Passovers. Jerusalem synagogues empty during Passover. Unprecedented. To this day, I can't get my mind wrapped around what really happened during that festival. Well, this is the timetable here in Diocletian's period. Now, what did he do? Check this out. Commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures be destroyed by fire. The very thing we see happening in our streets today. Bibles are being burned. And ordering that those who held places of honor be degraded and that the household servants, if they persisted in the profession of Christianity, be deprived of freedom. You know, one of the things that you will recognize when the spirit of Antichrist comes, it begins to come against those people who are honorable, even in political positions. It will come against those who are honorable men. And it will elevate the wicked and lawless. It is totally diabolical. Diocletian, no question, was an antichrist. And no question, they were up against a mark of the beast moment. Now, continuing, it gets crazier. Such was the first edict against us. But not long after, other decrees were issued. Isn't this interesting? Spirit of Antichrist comes in. Okay, we're going to issue some decrees up front. Some edicts are going to pass, but we're not going to stop. More are to follow. Now tell me we're not living in those days right now, right? Commanding that all the rulers of the churches in every place be first thrown into prison. And afterwards, by every uh, artifice and deception, be compelled to sacrifice. You have to pay homage to the image. You have to pay homage to the gods. You have to worship our gods. You have to denounce Christ. This is what you'd have to do. Now, isn't this interesting? This Diocletian, this Antichrist, this Mark of the Beast moment, what happened? They went after the pastors. They went after the shepherds of these uh, synagogues, these churches. They wanted to take out the shepherds, strike the shepherd, and this sheep will scattered. The Antichrist knows what he's doing. Now, if the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist is here, what can we expect to start happening in the future? If, in fact, we're in an Antichrist moment, a Mark of the Beast moment, watch out because you're going to start to see attacks against pastors all over the place. And we already are. We're already seeing it. Check this out. The most divine Diocletian and Maximianus, which enjoined that the meanings of the Christians should be abolished. Let me ask you what's happening right now. Are the meetings of the Christians being abolished? Yeah, you better believe it. I think most of you are probably acquainted with what's going on all over the country where churches in various states are being forced to be closed. They're not being allowed to meet at all. They're not being allowed to sing. This is literally happening. John MacArthur 
is in Crazyville right now. I mean, look at what is happening out there. First he wins the case, so to speak. Then appeals comes back. No, you can't meet. We're, we're cutting that off. Then it comes back. Another judge comes back and says, no, you know, we're, you can meet. And this needs to be dealt with further in September 4th or whatever. And so, in, in a sense, John MacArthur in his church wins, then he loses, then he wins again, and now he's losing again in, in the context of now the county of L.A. has come out and said, oh, guess what? Uh, since we haven't shut you down completely, what we are going to do, that land that you've been leasing for 45 years that you're utilizing for your church because it's so massive and parking on, yeah, all the personal property needs to be removed. Nothing can be left. I mean, it is demonic. Demonic spirits going after the church. And if you cannot see this right now, I am terrified for your soul. Because you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear in this generation. You're going to be taken out. I mean, I do not. I, I, there's, there are Christians out there that are stupefying me right now. Such as calling for Franklin Graham's removal from Samaritan's Purse. Apparently having over, at, at last I checked, over 11,000 signatures. They're called Christians. This is insane. You have the blind leading the blind out there. Absolutely mind-blowing. Continuing on in this passage. Many extortions, listen to this, many extortions and spoliations had been practiced by officials and that those evils were continually increasing to the detriment of our provincials. In other words, they went after us financially. They went after us. Now, I can tell you right now, there are churches being fined all over this country. There's a church in California that's already been fined over $50,000. And if they continue to meet, I think it's in Santa Clara. Don't quote me on that. But if they continue to meet, it's a $5,000 fine after that. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. And, you know, there's something else looming. There's one thing that you need to understand about this radical liberal left. That's merely, I say liberal left, that's a mass for communists. If they have their way... Understand, they're going to remove all tax benefits from the churches. No longer will they not have to pay property taxes. So all these buildings that exist all over the country, all those tax benefits will go away. And what do you think is going to happen to the churches? It will gut the churches. They financially will not be able to continue to make payments uh, to the city to even pay the taxes. They won't be able to afford it, especially when you consider the financial uh, tsunami that is coming in the future. And, yeah, I mean, we, we could go on. I mean, this is, this is what they're looking to do. Now, fortunately, the church is not brick and mortar. Fortunately, it is more than that. Certainly, buildings are, are a blessed place to be. Jesus himself went to the synagogue every Sabbath. It's a beautiful blessing. There's something special about ordaining a place of worship for the Lord. Yes, that is special. But uh, when times get tough, you know what? The body is us. It's believers coming together to pray, to fast, to read the word, to humble ourselves before the Lord. And you better believe it. It's to sing praises to him. That's the joy. That's the joy I look forward to. Uh, getting together on that. And we can't ever stop meeting. I don't care what goes down. Uh, in society, 
Uh, as Christians, you need to meet. There is power in prayers where two or three are gathered in my name. There he is in the midst of you. And so do not let go. Amen. Let me take you back, way back in time to the third century BC. And this is before the Maccabees even, when we get into the, to the Ptolemies and uh, as Ptolemy IV specifically, uh, which you should be able to remember Ptolemy IV because he is a mere replica of Antiochus IV, uh, who you know to be his epiphanies, the essence, the, the very personification of the Antichrist. Um, well, Ptolemy IV is just like him, came on the scene before him. I want to read to you this, and this is found in Third Maccabees, which it's kind of a misnomer to call it Maccabees because this is Maccabees aren't here in, in this. This is before the Maccabees. Anyways, side note. He proposed to inflict public disgrace on the Jewish community, on, on the people of God, okay? And he set up a stone on the tower in the courtyard with this inscription. None of those who do not sacrifice shall enter their sanctuaries, and all the Jews shall be subjected to a registration. Oh, a registration. You now need to go be registered. Involving poll tax and to the status of slaves. Those who object to this are to be taken by force and put to death. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And actually, uh, Ptolemy IV was considered an Antichrist in his day. There's no question about it. Moving on. Those who are registered are also to be branded on their bodies by fire with the ivy leaf symbol of Dionysus. Now, Dionysus, interestingly enough, was the son of Zeus. Thus, you would, he would be called the son of God. Okay? This is the one that you're going to be branded with. You're going to be branded with this false God, this false son of God. And they shall also be reduced to their former limited status in order that he might not appear to be an enemy of all. He inscribed below. In other words, for Ptolemy to say, hey, I'm not coming out against all citizens, uh, you know, I'll say this. But if any of them prefer to join those who have been initiated into the mysteries, they shall have equal citizenship with the Alexandrians. See? If you just succumb and give in to these sacrifices to Dionysus, oh, everything will go back to normal. Mark of the beast moment. No question about it. And so all this to say is, you know, if you truly want to understand what the mark of the beast is about, you want to make sure you don't get the mark, you have to understand what the mark of the Lord is. You have to understand what that entails. And how the devil wants to take that from you. And how he wants you to no longer have, as David had, the Lord at your right hand. But he wants to be at your right hand. And you listen to him and to his counsel. So to get the mark of the beast, the primary focus here, it's all about the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Anything that tries to subvert the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, I'm telling you right now, it is from the Antichrist. And yes, by doing so, by conceding, by compromising, you will receive a mark on your right hand and on your forehead. Not necessarily, doesn't have to be physical, but you will receive that mark. 
by your allegiance. That act already bore that mark in the sight of God. You already bear that mark in the sight of God. So there's no question about it. And however, I want to be clear, and in history uh, alludes to this as well, that it doesn't preclude a physical mark coming out or some certificate being given, like right now talking about digital certificates. I wouldn't necessarily say, hey, that's the, that in and of itself is the mark of the beast. No, I would say defiling this temple, giving in to the demands and the intimidation, putting pig blood or aborted fetal tissue in my temple, God's holy temple, that's the mark of the beast. Or how about this? This is kind of going back to Acts 15. There were two things mentioned in Acts 15 that immediately the believers in Yeshua, the Gentiles who were being grafted into Israel, had to abstain from. One, it was food loss. Three of the four commandments were all food loss. Very specific food loss. We don't need to go over that again. But what was the other one? Sexual immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body, but whoever commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now understand something. For you to start going out fornicating. Now, I, I will say this. Let, let me jump the thought here for a second. The two most probably talked about things that I know of right now, and tell me you think this is a coincidence. The two most prevalent things among our society right now, number one is pornography. It is pornography, total fornication, total defiling of the temple. It is an abomination from the pit of hell. And the second is the COVID-19 vaccine. I am telling you right now, the very two things that are mentioned in Acts 15, the very things that we cannot, that, that we, that we cannot compromise, that we have to embrace first and foremost, because this is about defiling the temple. These are the very two things that are running amok right now, if you will, in our society. And let's just say you don't get the COVID-19 vaccine, and let's just say it has aborted fetal tissue and cow blood and every un other ungodly thing, and let's just say you bypass that. You don't know you don't do that. But you're out fornicating by watching pornography. You're going to hell. Make no mistake about it. It is a mark of the beast moment. You are putting the devil at your right hand. There's no question about it. You've chosen whom you're going to serve. If you are involved in pornography, I can't make a stronger statement than that. That's the reality of it. And so I'm not looking for RFID chips. I'm not looking for vaccines. I'm not looking... Uh, for barcodes. I'm, I'm not looking for tattoos. I'm not looking for any of that stuff. I'm looking, wh what are you trying to get me to do to compromise the commandments of God? Because that's the mark of the beast. You trying to get me to, to watch porn, which you, you can clearly see the spirit of Antichrist is doing that quite well when you have much of the church engulfed in pornography. Or, are you going to try to get me to take a vaccine? It's not the vaccine I'm, I'm concerned about per se. It's what's in it. The, the, the vaccine, the needle is merely a vessel for ungodliness. Doesn't mean that every va any, vac any vaccine that's ever been created is evil. Okay, it depends what's in it. This is the critical point. You know, I had somebody ask me, it was interesting. I had actually um, some 
interesting inquiries based upon my last message in talking about the potential that this COVID-19 vaccine needs to be looked at serious as a potential candidate for what we would consider a mark of the beast, the mark of the beast, especially considering it's global. It deserves our attention. But some people were, were concerned and say, well, Daniel, man, I've had vaccines in my past and, and probably some of those had MRC5 or WI38 or cow blood or pig blood, you know, so on and so forth. And they're worried about the mark of the beast. Well, here's the thing. I, I, want, I want to address this in, in closing. I want to address this because as you go to the book of Revelation and you look at the seven churches and to the two of the churches, right? Uh, Pergamos, Thyatira. These people were doing something that would to garner them the mark of the beast in the sense of they were fornicating. They were eating food offered to idols. The two things they weren't supposed to be doing mentioned in Acts 15, they were doing both. They're committing fornication and they were eating food sacrificed to idols, bringing that stuff into their body. But here is the beauty. Jesus came and said, turn and repent. He gave them hope. He gave them an out. You have to turn and repent or he is going to come and kill you and your children with death. And so here's what I'm telling you. You have air in your lungs. You have a heart. You have a soul. You get on your knees and repent for any sins you have committed. And this, I can tell you, it's a biblical fact that whoever calls upon the name of Jesus, whoever confesses, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That being said, know this, because the Antichrist is moving en masse, and he is moving fast and in great power. We are coming up on the revelation mark of the beast moment where you will be put where you, we may, we may see it in this country. We may not be just threatened financially, may not be just threatened to be imprisoned. We may be threatened with death. We are going to come to the mark of the beast moment. And I'm telling you right now, you compromise your faith in that moment. You are in trouble. You are putting the devil at your right hand. Don't do it. Hold fast the faith. These are the times, everything for you Christians that have been believers for years and you've been studying the word and who knows how many countless prayers you have. Everything you've been doing is meant for this moment. We were supposed to be in training. We were supposed to be getting strong. We are to be teachers by now, not suckling on the milk of the word still. We were brought for such a time as this. And it is time as radical Jesus-believing, God-fearing, commandment-keeping Christians, we hold the line. Do not be intimidated. Do not shrink back. Don't you dare stop meeting in your churches. I don't care what kind of threat. We need to meet as the body of Christ. And we need to glorify him. And we need to sing the praises of Jesus. Jesus.